I don't know about all of you guys, but I noticed the trees were turning on the way in this morning. It was so cool. Like, feels like fall. We made an apple pie yesterday. Rachel roasted up some beets that she, you know, had actually grown. So I love this season. It's really, really lovely. You know, Rachel and I had a chance to get away and actually take a vacation together in mid-September, which was really nice. And it was the first one that we'd taken without friends or family since our honeymoon. So it's been like six or seven years. So it felt really good to just go have an adventure together. And we went up to Provincetown, Massachusetts, which uh, is like at the tip of Cape Cod. So, you know, Cape Cod kind of sticks out from Massachusetts. And right there on the end is where Provincetown is. And we went there in part because we knew it to be a really safe place for queer couples to go. And you know, like when you're on vacation, you want to feel like you can let your guard down, right? And that you can do things like hold hands in public without being glared at, which we have had happen to us, or just feeling unsafe. Um, I know like we didn't feel fully safe on our honeymoon when we took it, and so we learned a little bit from that experience. And so Provincetown just felt so good for us. It like let us relax and be ourselves. We got to hike and watch whales and look at the, the gardens. We kind of joked that it was like, it's like our good middle-aged vacation. We're like, oh, look at the gardens, and we'll take a little walk on the beach. And it was beautiful. And then we didn't have to worry about feeling scrutinized at all. And I share this because, you know, I think a lot of you have had experiences where you haven't felt entirely safe in faith communities for various reasons. And I know we have some newer people who found us during COVID times, um, I know quite a few of them are on Zoom this morning, and you might have actually had that experience pretty recently. And one of our reasons for being as a church is to try and create the kind of space where people can be themselves without shame or stigma or worry. And we are certainly not perfect at it. We have several areas of growth, but right, that's a goal, right? That's one of our stated intentions. And so this morning, I want to start off um, a smaller sermon series that helps us talk about who we are and what we believe to be helpful in our faith. Because a lot of us have come from places where we've had to do a lot of deconstructing. Right? We've had to deconstruct some of the beliefs that we've held for maybe a very long time. And some of you, I know, are still in that place of deconstruction. And I know our staff has felt from the beginning that our church is meant to be a place where we could not only deconstruct and be a safe place for that, but also to reconstruct. And so my hope is that this series will help us answer, like, what does a reconstructed faith look like? And so to start us out, there's a story in Mark chapter 2 that I, I actually preached on it a few years back, but I wanted to resurface it because for me it was such an important picture of who we are. And it's the story about the man who couldn't walk, whose friends lowered him down through the roof of a house so that he could see Jesus. And so in this story that we have, Jesus is teaching inside of a home in a fishing village called Capernaum. And in fact, it very well might have been his own home because we know the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he actually lived in Capernaum for a brief period of, um, of his life. And we know Mark tells us that it seems that Jesus had come home is how Mark put it. But regardless of whether or not it's his actual house, Jesus is teaching in a living space. And we're told that a whole bunch of people had come and they had gathered around him and that they were overflowing into the streets so that you could hardly even approach the home. And then Luke adds the little detail that these people were religious leaders who had come from all over. Some of them have walked probably up to a week to get there. And so I'd like for you to imagine with me, if you will, what it would have been like to be sitting 
in that living room listening to Jesus teach, in that little crowded space, and you've traveled a long way, and it's crowded, and maybe it's a little humid like it is today, and there aren't any really places to sit. You're kind of elbow to elbow with people, and you know that there's people packing the lanes outside the home, and that they're listening through just the windows and the doors. And so you're there, and you're listening to this rabbi who you've been excited to hear, and then all of a sudden there's a commotion on the roof. And you hear scuttling, and you hear like feet up there, and you hear maybe just a bunch of thumps, and you hear people talking back and forth to each other, and you're like, okay, that seems weird. I don't know what's going on up there, but you're listening intently. But then all of a sudden, some of the plastic, the mud that's been holding the roof up just starts to crumble. And it's like in your hair, and then it starts to fall off in pretty big chunks. And then all of a sudden, you're like, what is going on? Somebody's hand comes through the roof, and they start just tearing it away. And then other hands start to join in, and the hole starts to get bigger. And then just imagine, like, that would have taken a little while. Because if that roof was strong enough for people to stand up there, there was probably some pretty thick, you know, material that's going on. And so you're watching it, and people are just tearing away at perhaps Jesus' house. You're like, what is happening? And so you start to ask the people at the windows or the open doors, like, hey, what's going on out there? And nobody really knows. And then when the hole actually gets big enough, you see people trying to lower a man down through it. And if you can imagine how awkward that would have been, right? But people on the roof, they've got this man who's on a mat and they've tied ropes or cloth or something to it. And they're trying to get him at the right angle so that he doesn't like slip, because that wouldn't be good. And they're trying to angle so they're not standing probably on the edge so that they don't break off more of the roof, right? It just would have been this chaotic mess. And then as the man comes down into that crammed room, you and the others are trying to like scoot together even more to try and create space for this guy's mat so that it can lay right there on the floor in front of Jesus. And then the text tells us, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's kind of a weird thing, right? When Jesus saw their faith, plural, the man's friends, he said, friend, to the man singular, your sins are forgiven. I was like, what does that even mean? Why did this man need his sins forgiven? What do they have to do with that? Well, in Jesus' time, one way you could be found to be in a sinful state was if you like violated certain purity rules that would keep you out of the temple and cause people, maybe like some of these religious leaders, to avoid you so that they themselves wouldn't potentially become unclean and not be able to go into the temple. And there's some evidence that people who were physically sick or who had some differing abilities, like this paralyzed man, that they were considered unclean by some of the religious leaders of their time. And some even believe that like physical limitations meant that a person or maybe somebody in their family had done something like immoral and they were being punished for it. And Jesus counters ideas like these in other places, and I think here he seems to be doing the exact same thing. And he does it by showing some of the people who had the power to exclude this man from this room, right, to exclude him from the full embrace of communal life, that he's done nothing to deserve that exclusion. Right? It's like Jesus is saying, you might not be able to walk, and yet I declare you ritually clean. 
Right? That's what your sins are forgiven means in this context. It says you're welcome in this space just as you are and I want everybody here to know that you are not polluting me or them. Right? So he's using sort of his, his own power, his influence, his authority to make that statement and sort of advocate on this man's behalf. And only then did Jesus heal the man physically because he needed the teachers to know that the inclusion of this man in community did not depend on his physical abilities. Now, first century Judaism, much like Judaism today, our friends here who worship in the building, right? It, it's diverse and varied, and Jesus was speaking from within a stream of his faith tradition, right? So no doubt there are many leaders who would have just agreed with him. But in that moment, he seems to have been addressing religious leaders who held varied views about the sinful state of this man who couldn't walk. And perhaps even the majority of there were, had a more conservative take, and I say that because the text tells us that the religious leaders who were in that room were thinking, why does Jesus talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who, who can forgive sins but God? And so I think this story is in three of the Gospels because it's revealing to us that well-meaning religious teachers and leaders, and I'll include myself in that, but sometimes well-meaning religious leaders, the kind who travel for days to come and hear Rabbi Jesus teach, they can hinder people from accessing the broader community of faith by ascribing immoral attributes to like whole categories of people based on particular interpretations of scripture. Now obviously queer people have experienced this as have many BIPOC people, but also people who suffer you know, different mental health issues get stigmatized that way. Or in our culture, people who are poor are often wrongly ascribed immoral characteristics. Right? And we know that this is how shame works. Right? We make people feel like they don't belong on equal footing because something about them is inherently wrong. And what we see is Jesus rejects that idea. So something else that we notice in the story is that the friends of this man had bold, liberating imaginations, right? They're standing out there in these crowded streets and they're carrying their friend on a mat and they can't get anywhere close to getting inside the house. But they had hope and they had creative power and they had courage and they had a picture or an imagination of Jesus as the kind of person who would validate this man's worth. Right? And they thought, if there's no way through the door or the windows to get to Jesus, how can we possibly get in? Through the roof. Right? Their imaginations found a way. I mean, did they have to go on to some other house and hop over? Who knows? But they found a way. Or perhaps even the paralyzed man himself dreamt up that plan. He was the one with that bold, liberating imagination and others dared to act on it. But they made a way where there wasn't a way or where there seemed to be no way, right? So because of their faith, the man considered unclean was able to be declared a full member of the community just as he was, right? It took the faith of that man's friends to like help burst through that crowd of religious teachers. And these friends, they had to have the belief that it was more than fine for their friend to be in Jesus's presence, right? He wasn't unclean, he wasn't inherently immoral. And they had to have the hope that Jesus would see and restore this man to community, and that he would like have his back. And they had to have the audacity to climb up on the roof and then have their friends climb up as well. And then they had to have the ovaries to start digging apart somebody's house, right? Who does that, 
right? Actually, it made me think of Pete. Right? He was telling me at the picnic how he just like tore the roof off of his house, right? They had to have the ovaries to go onto somebody else's house, though, and just start tearing the roof off, and it might have even been Jesus's house. And then they had to lower that man down, right? So without them helping make the way, the lame man couldn't access Jesus. And so I like this story because much of our purpose here at Blue Ocean is including the people of our time who have been told they can't access Jesus or church as they are because something is inherently wrong with them. And that takes friends, it takes allies to help clear a path through religion so that people like me and Rachel can access Jesus in the full life of a church community, right? Where we don't have to protect ourselves or hide who we are or downplay our marriage or suspect that most of the people here think we should actually divorce or something. Like, that's not a good feeling. And it's taken the faith of straight people to help make that a reality in this church. I know Rach pointed out when we were on vacation, um, it hadn't struck me the same way until she said it. She just pointed out that we aren't often seen as a couple when we travel, right? And so it was really nice to go to this lovely inn in Provincetown, and the man who checked us in just automatically assumed we were a couple and referred to us as such and was talking to us about different romantic, um, like, restaurants where we could eat. And it just felt really good. And Rachel said to me after, she said, I feel seen, like, in a good way, in a way that feels different than normal. And so, like Rachel and I experienced there in Provincetown, my, I hope, my hope is that you can feel free to be yourself here. And I'm speaking especially to those of you who are a little bit newer, that you feel seen here, and that it's a place where you can start to develop this bold, liberating imagination so that we can also help others in the world, not just to access Jesus, but to find justice and acceptance, right? That that's part of the reason that we follow Jesus, right? Is to develop those muscles so that we can live that out in our everyday lives in lots of different ways. And we find healing in community where we can be safe, right? I'm going completely off script at this point. Just, just on like a more personal level, right? It's been a year and a half. We met last week, but it was a year and a half. And I think I've been really impressed that like, the core of the church just really held, I think, because there is that safety. And I hope you all know like, just how much that means um, to me, not Emily the pastor, but Emily the person, right? That we have this kind of community where we've found healing and meaning and people that we trust and that we love and um, that I look forward to seeing and being with every week. So with that, I know we usually have a time of guided meditation or silence and I was just doing a little bit of, you know, storytelling about who our community is, but I also know that many of us have come to church this morning. There's so much going on in our lives right now with work and school and stuff, and I know we're all carrying different things. And like that man coming down through the roof, maybe you just really feel like, ah, I just feel like I haven't been able to really talk to God or to Jesus, and I just really need to just be and bring something to them. And so I just want to make that space this morning. And so we'll take about a minute of silence. I'll invite you to just get comfortable, take a couple of deep breaths. And if it's helpful to you, you could imagine being in that room in front of Jesus, maybe just sitting on the floor and just, just bring whatever it is to God, however you understand God, 
um, that would be helpful for you to feel seen and known in this space. I'll let you know when the time is up. Thank you, Spirit, for being with us, for seeing us, for caring about what it is um, that we're carrying as well. And we ask that your divine presence would be with us in this coming week. Amen.